Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is New Rust Station, a show about the Rust programming language and the people who use it. This is episode 24, Traits Deep Dive, part two. In the first part of this deep dive, we talked about the details of defining your own traits and what you can and cannot do in terms of implementing and using traits defined outside your crate. In this episode, we're going to start talking about how you can use traits in place of concrete types. And in the next episode, yes, I said the next episode, we'll expand on that to talk about the impl trait feature that just landed on stable rust with 1.26. This was originally going to be a two-part deep dive, but as I got deep into this episode, I realized that there was no way I could cover everything I needed to cover in the way I needed to cover it in a reasonable amount of time. That makes sense. After all, traits are Rust's primary mechanism for abstraction, and they're extremely capable. So three episodes it is. I'm hoping it's only three episodes. The first thing I want to cover today is how a number of bits of Rust syntax are actually syntactical sugar for traits. This is something I've mentioned before, but it's worth digging into a little further. The most important of these traits are related to operators in Rust like add for addition, index for indexing, iterator for loops, and so on. It looks likely, along these same lines, that something similar will be in play with async and await and future in the future. The way this works is that there are a set of traits the Rust compiler has special knowledge of. It's not that the traits get special privileges in terms of their capabilities with respect to the language. There are a couple of those we've talked about in the past, like send and sync. But operator traits are not like that. Instead, some syntax in the language gets turned back into the same old normal traits that everything else uses. To put that more concretely, these traits are just traits that you could write. The special case here is the syntax, not the traits. Rust doesn't let us invent new operators. It does express its existing operators largely in terms of the same things that we can already write. So to grab one of those examples I mentioned a minute ago, when you write A plus B, that's equivalent to calling A dot add B with its, as its argument, or B dot add A is the argument, or even add colon colon add A comma B. The operator is special syntactical sugar for the trait method. This idea is not unique to Rust, and Rust is actually quite restrained compared to many other languages in terms of how much of this kind of thing you can do. C++ will let you override every mathematical operator, Swift 2, and Swift and Haskell let you freely invent your own operators using symbols. There are upsides to those things, but the downside is that when you see a symbol, it may or may not mean what you think it does, and you may in fact not have any idea what it means at all. That has certainly been my experience reading Haskell, just because I don't do it all day every day. I get symbol overload. For those reasons, Rust has chosen to go in a different direction. There is a core set of operator traits, which can be implemented for new types, but you cannot create your own new operators. It's not allowed. Second, because these are traits, operators are subject to the orphan rule we talked about in episode 23. As such, you cannot re-implement traits for core types, even if you're feeling clever. That is to say, you cannot re-implement operators for core types, even if you're feeling clever. There was an interesting discussion on the internals forum a few years ago along these lines about whether to add support for using the slash character as a path join operator. You can do that in Python. 
a number of people liked it, but it doesn't fit the way Rust normally approaches these things, and ultimately the idea was dropped. This isn't so much a right or wrong kind of thing as a what fits with the rest of the language and what do people expect kind of thing. The upshot to all of this, in any case, is that you can impl add for your own types and have the plus operator just work. So, for example, let's take the idea of a point in three-dimensional Cartesian space with x, y, and z coordinates. We can define that with struct point having properties x of i32, y of i32, and z of i32. And then if we wanted to define the add operation for one of these points, we would use standard ops add. And then we would impl add for point. That's a function named add, which takes self by value and the other as a point. We can actually implement it for references as well, but I'll pass over that for today. And it will return a point. And what we would return is just a point whose x value is self.x plus other.x, and whose y value likewise is self.y plus other.y, and z is self.z plus other.z. And given that, we can add any two point instances together. It's actually quite simple. And that's how all the operators work. They are traits, which expose a method. And if that method is implemented for the two things you're dealing with, Rust will properly pull up the underlying trait and use it. Let's talk about some other ways we can use traits now. The first thing we'll talk about has to do with generics and traits. Generics and traits relate in two distinct ways. First, traits can be generic themselves, and second, traits can be used to constrain generic types. So let's talk about generic trait types. Traits themselves can be ordinary generic types. They're not usually, because most of the time with traits, we end up using associated types instead. And as I've mentioned, I do have an episode in the pipeline for that. It's probably a month or two out, but we'll talk all about associated items. However, it's worth noting that you can write a generic trait. We were using this idea of an eatable trait in the previous traits deep dive episode. We could do the same thing here. We could say trait eatable t, so eatable is generic over t, where our eat function that we defined takes self by reference and returns t. And then we could impl eatable narrowing to string for i32. And then we could say fn eat takes self by reference and returns a string. And then the body would just be self dot to string. Again, this example is pretty silly, but it gets the idea across. Anywhere we had an i32, we could call dot eat on it and get back a string. We could also do impl eatable with some other type in the generic position and get something totally different out. And this suggests why we generally prefer to use associated types, because we would need to manually write down one of those generic implementations for every distinct value of the type parameter we have. That is one of the major motivating ideas behind associated items, including associated types. So we'll come back to that. But so you know, that is a thing you can do. Now, one of the primary places that you'll see existing constraints is the second and larger focus of this section of our episode. It's constraints for generic types. Because you can use traits as a generic constraint, this lets us write a function which is not generic over everything, but rather over anything which implements a given trait or a given set of traits. For example, you might want to render some HTML with the values in a struct. 
In that case, you don't really care what the concrete type is. You just care that it has the display trait implemented. So you'd write your function as generic over any type which implements display. There are two ways we could write that. The first is with the trait constraint in line, right, by the generic type parameter it constrains. So we could say function render HTML, which is generic over a type T, which has the constraint of being display, and we write that T colon display. And then the argument to the function would be something like displayable of type T, and the return value would be HTML. And then we do whatever we need to to take this displayable type and actually render the HTML. What we're actually saying here in type terms is that our type T must be a subtype of display. But other than that, it can be anything. Note that subtype here is not identical to the idea of a subclass in object-oriented languages, although subtype and subclass are often the same in those languages. In Rust, as in programming language theory more generally, a subtype is merely any type which is substitutable for another type. In traditional OO languages, the two ways you often get at this are subclassing and the use of interfaces. Given that latter, the use of interfaces, it's no surprise that we see it here with traits in Rust. So coming back to our trait constraint example, we're marking some generic type T as a subtype of display. We could write this another way, though. We could write it with a where clause. Where clauses start with a keyword where, and they go after the return value for a function. So rewriting our render HTML with a where clause, it would read function definition render HTML is generic over type T, has an argument called displayable of type T and returns HTML where T colon display. That is where T has the constraint that it must be display and then the body of the function. This has the same meaning as an inline constraint, but it becomes extremely important and very handy where the trait constraints on generic parameters get to be a long list, especially the cases where you have multiple generic type parameters and each one of them has one or more type constraints. So when there is more than one trait constraining a generic, you separate them with a plus. Here, for example, if our generic type T needed to be totally ordered as well as displayable, perhaps so we could sort these items, then we would write the constraint as T colon display plus ord. This kind of constraint can be used for items in argument position and return position. And a prime example of the way you can use it in return position is the standard iterator iterator collect method. This one has some surprising properties when you're not used to it, and frankly, some surprising properties even when you are used to it. So much so that I once saw someone describe it as feeling like you have overload by return type. And it is indeed kind of like overloading in other languages. I've mentioned this before, but this is a good time to stop and trace out a specific idea in a bit more detail. With Rust's generic types, the compiler does a process called monomorphization. Monomorphization is the process of taking something which is polymorphic, something which represents many forms, many types, and turning it into something which has just one form, just one type. So for a specific, if rather trivial example, we could use standard format display, and then we could write a function to string, which takes a generic of type T, which has the constraint display, written either of the ways we talked about a minute ago, so an argument of that type T, and returns a string. And then we could call the format macro on it and just return the formatted value T. We would never actually write this function. We have the standard string to string trait for this, but it'll do for an example. 
We have here a function, which is generic over the type T, where T is constrained to be any type which implements display. So it's polymorphic. You can pass many different types, many different shapes into this. The only thing that matters is that those shapes have an implementation of display. But for performance reasons, we do not want to leave it polymorphic at runtime. We don't want to have to do anything special at runtime for generic functions. We don't want to have to look them up in a table of different versions of the function to call. We don't want to have to put them behind a pointer and add indirection and allocations as a result. We just want functions we can call normally as if we had written a specific concrete type for each function we needed to call. So when the Rust compiler gets to this in your program, what it actually does is goes through your program and figures out all the different types which get used as this generic type T, and then creates a specific version of the function for each of them. For example, let's say you had called toString 42i32 and toString with some IPv6 address and toString with some custom type where that's one of your own types where you've implemented display, Rust would create three versions of this toString function. And under the hood, they each get their own names, which for today at least, and this is sort of private implementation details, but you can go see it in the assembly. Those names include the crate and the module name and a hash to disambiguate them from each other. There is no more generic function. It's just three individual non-generic functions. And this is a prime example of Rust's aim to have zero cost abstractions. You don't pay any more runtime cost for this generic code than you would have by writing those individual implementation functions by hand, which is how you'd have to do it to avoid pointer and dynamic lookup costs otherwise. Now, with a function this simple, it's possible and perhaps even likely that you wouldn't end up with functions here at all. Rust might actually just inline them. But the idea is what we care about. So going back to our examples, we started out dealing with monomorphization of argument types in our silly eatable example. But Rust does the same thing with return types. So we can come back to this example of the collect method on an iterator. The signature for collect is a function generic over a type B, which is constrained as being anything which implements from iterator with the associated type self item. And it takes self by value and returns this B type. And it puts another constraint on all of this. This self associated type has to be sized. There's a lot there. So let's talk through it in some more detail. Collect is generic over B. B has to implement from iterator. From iterator is a generic trait, as we talked about above. The generic parameter for from iterator defines the type returned from its from iter method. And the definition of collect now tells us that the type returned will be the item associated item from the iterator implementation collect is called on. Whew, you might want to listen to that again. And it, in point of fact, it's actually more complicated than that. There's an associated item and another trade involved on top of these, but I don't want to get too far away from collect at this surface level right now. And you can look at the API docs for all the details. This function, though, collect, returns this generic type B, which implements from iterator for the kind of item contained in the iterator we're dealing with. That's ultimately what we're trying to get at. The result is that collect can take your iterator and wrap it back up into almost anything as long as it has all the pieces it needs to do that. You cannot go from a simple list of values to a hash map, for example, because you don't have anything for the key type in a hash map. But 
The compiler will also tell you that because HashMap doesn't implement from iterator for an iterator over a simple list of values. On the other hand, you can go the other way because you can collect from an iterator over a HashMap into a vector instance because it can just collect the values or the keys or all sorts of other things in other contexts. One thing that's important to notice here, and you should remember this for next time, it'll be important when we talk about impl trait, is who's in control of the type when we're talking about generic arguments or generic return types. When we have a generic argument type, we're basically saying for any type T, any being the key word here, which satisfies this trait constraint, I will do the right thing. And that means that the caller is in control of the type. When I call some generic function with a concrete type, I as the caller have control over the type that goes in. On the other hand, when we have a generic return type, we're saying, I will give you some type T, not any, but some, which satisfies this trait constraint. And that means that the function itself is in control of the type you get back. This starts taking us into some interesting type theory ground, specifically into universal and existential types, that any, the argument position, is, for our purposes, always a universal, and the return value is an existential, it's some type. We'll talk a little bit more about this next time in the impl trait discussion. For now, just try to internalize the notion that for generics with trait bounds in argument position, the function takes any matching trait. For generics with trait bounds in return position, the function will return some type matching a trait. And you really don't need to worry about the type theory here so much to use Rust, but it's helpful because you'll see those words come up in discussions sometimes, and you shouldn't be intimidated by them. That's all they mean. And that gives us a pretty good look at using traits in conjunction with generics, as well as how they get applied as syntactical sugar. In the next episode, we'll finish up this deep dive on traits by taking a look at how we can use them directly in argument and return positions by making use, in particular, of the new impl trait syntax from Rust 1.26, but not only that way. We'll also be digging into the extremely important concept of object safety. And given how long this episode is, longer than a normal teaching episode already, well, you can see why I split it into yet another episode. So look forward to that coming soon. Thanks, as always, to everyone who sponsors the show. This month's $10 or more sponsors included, and by request, this is all mixed up and out of order rather than just alphabetical this time, Hans Fjallemark, Dan Abrams, Martin Huschober, Chip, Nick Stevens, Nathan Scully, John Rudnick, Zachary Snyder, Daniel Collin, Matt Rudder, Olushe Shonaya, Peter Tillemans, Anthony Deschamps, Alexander Payne, Vesa Kailavirta, Chris Palmer, Ramon Buckland, Damian Stanton, Daniel Mason, Derek Buckley, David W. Allen, Benam Esfabode, Aaron Turon, Ryan Osiel, Paul Naranja, Olaf Leidinger, Marshall Clyburn, and Rafe Levine. Out of order so that it could be randomized, and I'll probably do this from now on just for fun. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can set up ongoing support at patreon.com slash neurostation, or you can send a one-off my way via any of a number of other services. Those are all listed at neurostation.com, where you can also find scripts and code samples for most of the teaching episodes, including this one, and transcripts for many of the interviews. And of course, there's full show notes for every episode. I always link to anything I mention. You can find notes for this episode at neurastation.com slash show underscore notes slash E024. 
If you're enjoying the show, I do appreciate it when you help others find it by telling them about it in person or sharing on social media or rating or reviewing it in your favorite podcast directory. I do go look at those sometimes, and I appreciate the kind words many of you have offered. The show is on Twitter, at New Rust Station, and you can follow me there, at Chris Kreitcho. You can also respond in the threads on the Rust user forums, Reddit, Hacker News, Lobsters, anywhere else I think to share it. And of course, you can just send me an email at hello at newruststation.com. Until next time, happy coding. <laughs>